Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. I'm C.P. Leslie, the host of New Books in Historical Fiction. Today I'm speaking with Anjali Mitterduva about Faint Promise of Rain. This debut novel opens in northwest India, Rajasthan, in the summer of 1554, with the birth of a girl child, Adhira. That this is no ordinary birth is indicated by the arrival of rain. As hinted by the book's title, and as the narrator explains early on, rain is at best an infrequent event in this part of India. Adhira 1611. In Radisson, where I was born, a child of five is likely never to have seen rain. For hundreds of years, the monsoons have been elusive. In the children's rooms in the royal palace, not far from what used to be my family home, the walls are painted with black and blue cloud designs, so the little ones will not be afraid when the skies finally break open. But for less fortunate children, such as my brothers and sister, the day of their first rain can mean an intensity of both fear and hope. And for adults whose lives are connected to the rhythms and cycles of beliefs they cannot always explain, these storms can signify both portent and promise. So when the skies darkened and the heavy drops fell as I was born, it is no wonder that some considered it a sign that I had been chosen. Of course, I began, as all children do, accepting my lot in life. It was the only life I knew. Ruled by the decisions of my father, dance master at the temple to Lord Krishna, just outside the citadel of Jaisalmer. When I was old enough, I began to understand, contrary to what he told me, that I could have a hand in creating my own path. And although I struggled greatly along the way, the deities must have approved of my choices. For many, many years later, they made me special, after all. So to find out more about what makes Atira special, please join me in welcoming Anjali Duva. Hi, Anjali. I'm really looking forward to talking with you today. Thanks. Hi, you too. I appreciate the time you, you do for the take for this. So according to your author bio, your family comes from Calcutta, uh, but you grew up in France and now live in the United States. How did that come about? That is one of the first questions I get um, because people are sometimes a little confused as to... Uh, you know, my my answer to to where I'm from is is more complicated than 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 it is for some other folks. So what happened was that I, um, my mother is American, Caucasian American, uh, and my father is Indian, and they met in the United States. And uh, at some point, my father, who's a physicist, got invited to France to uh, ostensibly for just one year to work on a project with a colleague there. And then one year turned into two. This was when I was a few months old that we moved there. And uh, and then he got offered a permanent position working uh, as a civil servant for the French government in the, their National Center for Scientific Research. And, well, there's worse places to settle than Paris. And so the, my parents stayed. And several decades later, they're still there. And that's how I, that's how I came to grow up in France. And then I came back uh, to the U.S. as a college student. I always kind of knew that I would come to the U.S. for college. I had that opportunity as a U.S. citizen uh, 
you know, I could apply, I could, I was eligible for scholarships and such. And the French, the French school system is, is quite rigid in that you have to decide once you get out of high school right away, what, what field you want to go into. And I don't know many 17 year olds who really know at that stage of their life, what they want to do. And my brother who's older than I am. And I had always grown up with the knowledge uh, that there's this liberal arts education concept here in the U.S. that gives you a little more time to figure yourself out. So we both uh, followed the same trajectory, went through high school in France, and then came to the U.S. for college. And here I am many, many years later. <laughs> so when did you start writing fiction? Uh, I'm not one of those writers who always knew that she would be a writer, uh, but perhaps the writing was on the wall Quite literally, because my family has a lot of books uh, by family members on the shelves. So there's a lot of writers in my family. My mother's a writer. My grandfather was a poet. Uh, and a lot of family members are, are academics and have written in that context of academia. So there's a lot of books. There's a lot of books by family members. And even though uh, I didn't know as a as a as, as I was growing up that I was going to be a writer. I think I benefited from this innate understanding that writing was a it's a it's a valuable worthy pursuit. I've never had to uh, you know try to validate my choice with my family, which which I know some folks have had to do. So I wrote uh, I wrote you know I wrote in a journal. Uh, I wrote. Uh, little stories now and then, poems that I kept to myself, uh, and but not not so much fiction actually, most mostly just journals. And but I always got nice positive feedback on my writing in the context of schoolwork, in the context of um, uh, you know college work. Then and little by little, I found myself in the position of being somebody to whom people brought their essays or their articles or something, saying, "Hey." Would you take a look at this? Could you give me suggestions? Uh, and I enjoyed that. I, I've always, always enjoyed words. Uh, the fiction writing aspect came about uh, serendipity. You know, I, I, I was an urban, I was working as an urban planner in infrastructure planning, which is quite far from fiction. In fact, sort of completely the other end. Very concrete, real uh, projects. Uh, but I started taking a dance class, an Indian classical dance class. And in the context of that, um, I started researching this type of dance called Katak. And well, to make a long story short, I ended up starting a nonprofit dedicated to this tradition, this classical tradition here in the Boston area where I live. And the story itself of this dance and how it traveled through the history of India uh, gave birth in my head to uh, the idea not only of one novel, but because I'm a planner of four novels um, that would trace uh, historical novels that would trace the travels and the development of this classical art form throughout the history of India, but with fictional characters. Uh, just to make it a, a more fun read. And so in a sense, the, the fiction project kind of just landed on me. 
That's great. Then you got to my next question, which was about the Kathak dance, which is wonderful. Um, can you tell people a little bit about uh, Kathak dance before we get to the, the novels? And I'm delighted to hear that there's going to be three more of them. That's yeah, yeah, I'm working on the second now. Um, so Kathak, which is spelled K-A-T-H-A-K, is one of the seven or eight, there's some debate there, but seven or eight forms of classical dance from India. And, you know, when I say classical, it's, to, it's differentiated from some other forms of Indian dance with which people have become familiar, such as, um, you know, sort of Bollywood or Bhangra. So Katak is a classical art form. It's the only one from India that really melds both Hindu and Muslim aesthetics and traditions because it was developed in the northern part of India, which uh, in the 1500s all the way through the 1800s fell under Muslim rule under what became known as the Mughal Empire. And so this form of dance traveled through the history of India, absorbing a lot of the sociopolitical upheavals of that region, the subcontinental region, uh, starting out as a, a dance that was practiced mostly by um, traveling dancers, kind of like minstrels or, or bards traveling from village to village, bringing stories of the great Hindu epics, the Mahabharata and the Ramayana, the stories of the Hindu gods and goddesses, to, um, to villages and then it got brought into this form of dance got brought into the temple arena um temple setting and became a devotional hindu uh practice and that is the setting of my book faint promise of rain it takes place in that that context and it was practiced by women and uh and girls who were dedicated to the temple. They basically belonged to the temple. They went through a ceremony where they were wedded to the temple's deity and they, they were celebrated as sort of vessels of the divine that they would dance in honor of this deity. But they had another side to their lives. And this is really what made me want to write this book, which is that they had uh, duties towards patrons who paid the temple for access to these young girls um, and women. And so there was this duality in, in how they were perceived on the one hand as sacred and on the other hand as, you know, sort of property to be done with um, as the patrons pleased, which has some reflections even in Indian society now and not just in Indian society, even in others as well, where uh, women on the one hand are, you know, revered as the life givers and mother with a capital M uh, and on the other hand are abused. So, uh, so then, you know, then during the Mughal era, what happened is that during Muslim rule, the, this dance got brought into, uh, the, the courtesan, they, they got brought into Mughal courts and became a courtesan art, a form of entertainment. And while there was still this as patronage side, these women actually had much more, uh, say in their lives. And, uh, and a lot of them became, quite uh quite powerful they would have the ear of of rulers they became advisors some of them they were highly educated uh a little bit in the in the in the in the same vein as geishas they were some of the more um educated literate talented women of the time and then you know uh then 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 at the end of mogul rule what happened was the british took over 
and they outlawed the dance because that other side of it uh, they found didn't really mesh well with their Victorian morals at the time, so it's 1850s, and the dance got driven underground um, and survived in the red light districts of, of a number of cities in northern India. Uh, and it wasn't until 1930s or so, and just before Indian independence, that it really came back, was pulled back up and re-given its respectability. Now it's an art form that you can see performed around the world. It's, um, it's incredibly dynamic. There's a lot of footwork, uh, percussive footwork, a lot of mathematical patterns, and uh, it, it's pretty dazzling. Um, and so I recommend anybody uh, who's listening to look up uh, on YouTube, K-A-T-H-A-K is the type of dance, and, and look at some of the clips. Uh, and there's some really interesting work happening now uh, between Katak artists and other percussive dancers, for example, in flamenco or tap, uh, and and sort of a, a cultural exchange through through percussive dance, which is a, a great thing to see now. That's all absolutely fascinating. Thank you so much. Um, I had no idea that it had such a complicated history. Yes, <laughs> quite complicated. So let's talk about your book, uh, which is really beautiful. Um, the first character we meet is Adira. Uh, and please correct my pronunciation if I get these wrong. Yeah, no, that's correct. Um, she's a little girl born during the rainstorm, whose um, uh, story I have uh, given an inkling of in the introduction. Um, and the book is really her story, which she tells both through her own perspective and the points of view of various family members, which she can do, we're told, because she is emotionally and spiritually attuned to them. Um, and it's a very interesting concept, and for the most part, it works. Uh, but still, Adhira is the heart of the story. So how do you see her as a character? Uh, so that, that, that's, a, that's a great question, because I struggled with that for a while. And the result of my uh, sort of really spending a lot of time thinking about her as a character is the result is this somewhat unconventional approach I took to point of view where she has some insight into uh, the thoughts and feelings of, of some of the people around her. She is so critical to the story, actually, so crucial to the story that at first I was kind of overwhelmed by it. And, and I think out of, uh, complete lack of courage. I shied away from from her. I had this idea at first that uh, that she was a symbol more than a person. That she was this tradition. She was this dance. And I wanted to portray her through the eyes of her family members and through the eyes of the the people around her, so that uh, in in my mind the the reader would form a his or her own opinion or view of this, of this character. Uh, but the fact of the matter is this, it's, she's not a symbol. Uh, she's a person and readers of course wanted to know about her thoughts and feelings and, and needed her to be fully a character they could relate to. It's hard to relate to a symbol. So hence that this, uh, device I used where, uh, she is still, she's still, she's still to me an embodiment of this dance. She, she is so one with it. She, she's an exquisite dancer and, uh, dancing is her form of release. It's her faith. Uh, it's her freedom. And, but the, the characters around her still have 
she, she means different things for the different people, for her father, for her mother, for her different siblings. And I still wanted to get that across, uh, that, that she, she's not just one, one entity. Each person, each person's view of her really informs their own actions and, and decisions. Um, yeah, I think that's, that's a really important thing to understand about her. Um, her father, you mentioned, he's the dance master at the Temple of Krishna. I think you answered this question a little bit, but I'd like to hear more about it. What, what does that mean um, in this part of India in the 1550s? So this part of India is Rajasthan in the northwestern part of India, um, bordering on what is now Pakistan. Although you know these two names were irrelevant, they hadn't come into into being yet at the time in the 1550s. But the idea is that there there's this temple, and I took some liberties. You know, when, as writers of historical fiction, we have to think about how much do we adhere to the actual facts uh, of the time and place, and how much can we uh, bend a little bit. Not so much for the sake of the story, but perhaps for the sake of the audience. For example, I knew that I would be writing that this book would come out first in for a Western audience here in the United States, and it it it, it tackles a lot of cultural and historical information and context, which I try to weave in as seamlessly as I can into the story, but. Uh, the fact of the matter is that in that part of India, the deity known as Krishna, while while very um, sort of predominant in a, in a lot of India, is not one of the main deities revered in Rajasthan. Uh, Rajasthan, a lot of towns in Rajasthan or regions kind of have their own deities. You see a lot of, if you travel there, you see a lot of, shrines and and temples to deities that are less well known uh for lack of a better word and so i decided instead to use krishna because uh this is a character well a deity but also a character that who comes up a lot in indian art in music in dance in stories uh on google you know where my readers might go to look up more information so that's what that was one of the places i kind of bent the, 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 the truth, as it were, a little bit. But uh, so the idea is there's this temple, this temple to Krishna, and uh, there are these dancers, the Devadasis, they're known as, who are servants of God, is what Devadasi means. And they live at the temple once they've been through their dedication ceremony, uh, and especially then once they uh, have come of age and... Um, and have a patron, then they live in this very women-centric, women-dominated uh, sort of enclave at the temple. And they dance. And, of course, they have to be taught to dance, right? It's not like they're born being able to do this. And so there's a dance master. And in this story, Adhira's father, Gandhar, is this dance master. He, His father was a dancer. His father before him... Uh, passed down this tradition. And so Gandhar is no longer wandering around from village to village. He settled down in the town of Jaisalmer and uh, and is the dance master at this temple. 
So the male dancers mostly um, roam around, and the, the women either roam around or, or stay with the temple? Is that the idea? Um, well, no, the, by then the dance, you know, he had, I'm sort of marking the transition with him, with his life. Uh, the dance around then was going from being mostly uh, itinerant dancers, groups of dancers traveling to to being brought into temples. So this is kind of the a transition. He, he kind of marked a transition point where when he was growing up, he was traveling, but then his he, they ended up in Jaisalmer. Uh, when his wife Girija was about to give birth to her first child and they stayed put for a while and then he ended up just staying, taking on the position of the dance master. Uh, and so so it's not so much a male versus female thing as a, a timing thing. It, it went from being primarily traveling dancers to being primarily based uh, in, at, in at specific temples. Got it. Okay. So, and is it a relatively powerful position within the temple? Uh, yes. I mean, I, that's interesting. Nobody's ever asked me that. Um, I think so. I think so because the, the dancers themselves, uh, I mean, he, the dance master is kind of the link between the temple world and the priest, uh, and, and, and all the, a lot of pilgrims would come, especially for big, holidays or festivals celebrating the birth of the deity or that, that kind of thing. Pilgrims would, would come to the temple sometimes stay overnight uh, and there would be, you know, festivities and, and dancing. And so the dance master was kind of the bridge between them and these dancers who, who were representing, you know, the divine on, on earth. And Gondor has very strong views about what he wants from his children. He's got two sons and two daughters. Um, what does what does he want for Adhira, and how would you characterize his relationship with her? So Adhira for for Gandhar is it, he, she's Gandhar's last hope. He is somebody who is steeped in tradition, whose whose goal in life is to uh, is to teach this dance and to to perpetuate this tradition and to share the stories of the deities this way. And for various reasons, none of his other three older children have followed the path that he expected or wanted for them. So while they, so so there's there's a there's an older sister who, who doesn't show up quite at this part at the beginning of the story, but we know that she exists, and she ran away to um, to get married and, and to live in the in the citadel. So she left, which was you know something that was very much not done and and Gandhar basically gave up on her and sort of pretends she doesn't exist uh and then there's a adolescent son Mahendra and he in you know he, in theory he's the next in line to be the dance master but th that's not what he wants he's he's very agitated in a way that adolescent boys can be um, by the impending uh, arrival of Muslim armies, and uh, w which have already started conquering parts of India, and he's concerned that you know why are we sitting, standing around out here in the desert dancing when we need we should be fighting, and he wants to be a warrior, so he's not dancing either, although he's capable of it. Uh, and then there's another boy who can't dance because he was born with. Um, with the disabled, he was, he's disabled. He was born with misshapen legs. And so he cannot be the next dance master. 
uh, or he cannot continue the tradition. And then there's Adhira, who's who's the last child and, and Gandhara's last hope. And so uh, actually for him, Adhira is kind of a symbol. I mean, obviously he's she's his daughter uh, and he loves her as such, but but he he's looking at her not just as a person, but as um, his life's work, you know, his his legacy. And uh, her mother, Girija, isn't um, as in as not much in favor of this as a future for Adhira, or she's not entirely in favor of it. Why is that? What is she afraid of? So Girija is an interesting character. She's um, well, she like I mean, like women, I think throughout time have wanted something different, something better for their daughters. Uh, and she knows, she knows that her husband is, is so focused on the art, on the tradition that he's losing touch of with what, what it, wh- who his daughter really is as a person. And it's an, it's an interesting thing that I, I think bears discussing, which is the, the sort of almost human sacrifices uh, that have been made in the name of art that I think every, every artistic tradition that has really survived through decades, centuries of history uh, owes some of that survival to people like Gandhar who put aside, you know, feelings for the sake of perpetuating the art. Now, whether that's a good thing or not, I mean, that's a, another conversation. But, um, you know, Girija sees that Gandhar is doing this to their daughter. Uh, but for her, who she herself is not a Devadasi, she wasn't born of one, and uh, she wasn't given to a temple. So she she doesn't dance. And so she she sees her daughter as this child, right, this girl, whereas she knows that her husband sees their daughter as a symbol and as, uh, his life's work. Uh, so, so she's opposed on the one hand to what he's doing, which is grooming Adira to become a Devadasi. Um, but she's not really in a position to, to do much about it. I mean, women at that time, uh, even more recently than at that time, just didn't have a position in, in the family or in society or enough of a voice to be able to make decisions. And so she's, she's feeling kind of trapped. Um, and she does what she can, uh, to, to, to try to propose another path for Adira. She's a very interesting character, Girija. Can you tell us something about her background? Yeah, she's, uh, so she was born in, she comes from Mount Abu and Mount Abu is a beautiful place in Rajasthan. Well, I mean, frankly, I think all of Rajasthan is beautiful, but it's something special about Mount Abu, which is it's actually an oasis. Um, it's in a hilly area and there is, um, there's a lake, uh, which gives that, that part of Rajasthan, a lot of greenery, uh, and vegetation, which other parts of Rajasthan don't have. And she grew up in Mount Abu, the daughter of a renowned sword maker, who is uh, in a lineage of sword makers uh, for princes and kings. And in, Rajasthan is very well known, especially in, during his history, to, to be a place of uh, very, um, very strong warriors. It has a, has a big military warrior history. 
very brave warriors, very uh, courageous, uh, who who defended a lot of their city citadels and and cities from numerous invasions. So so her her father is the sword maker, uh, but she, as a young girl, as a baby, she caught an illness which left her almost completely blind. Not completely, but almost. And as a result, she is or was quote unquote unmarriageable. And so her father is not, not a savory character at all and uh, was hoping to marry her off and, and wasn't sure he was going to be able to do that. And, but meantime, she's a beautiful young girl. And so she ends up falling prey to uh, some of his friends who, who decide that they can take their liberties with her. And he, he, the father doesn't do much to, uh, to, to protect her. And so she 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 is desperate to leave. She has a very strong, fierce, independent streak in her. And what happens is that uh, she encounters Gandhar in a way which I'll let the <laughs> let readers discover if they read the book. But she encounters Gandhar and uh, experiences his dance. And when I say experiences, it's because she can't really see it, but she's still taken in uh, with what she can sense of it, and she leaves. And she leaves with him, and that is her sort of ticket out of her situation and her home. Uh, so, so on the one hand, Gandhar and his dance are what enabled her to to leave a, a, a difficult childhood. But then the fact that they're tied down to the temple and that Gandhar has decided to to stay there uh, is now what restricts her. She she had hoped that she could just travel. And be and and just kind of see more of the world. Well, see, not see, but experience more of the world. And instead, now she's uh, feeling very trapped in Jaisalmer um, and and unable to to give the future that she wants to her own child. So you talked a little bit about um, Atira's brothers and what they want, but how do they see Atira? What does she symbolize for them? For the brothers. Mm-hmm. So, uh, so yeah, so for Mahendra, I mean, here's the thing. Everybody's decisions and actions in this story all stem from the same place, which is a love for Adhira and a desire to protect her and to protect their whole family. But they're all coming at it from different directions and they all act very in different ways. Uh, and the tragedy of it is that they don't, see that they're actually trying to achieve the same thing, so, which I think is a, you know, this is not particular to this family in this story in this time. This is a more universal phenomenon. But Mahendra, Mahendra worries. I mean, Mahendra's a, he's an interesting character because he's a dancer and he, he actually does have the dance in him in a way. Um, and he's desperately trying to be something else. He's desperately trying to be a warrior to fight uh, but 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 the reason is to protect his family and and to protect um, Adira from from having to go with these patrons and and be this uh, you know sexual companion to to older men. So uh, so he really wants to be uh, the older brother who 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 saves her. He, his mission is to you know quote unquote save her. Uh, the the other brother who's who's in between and in age in between Mahendra and Adira, he is, he has a very special bond with Adira. He, he can't dance because of his legs, but he actually, he's a very sensitive 
child, and he uh, he has a way with numbers and with rhythm and with patterns, and he ends up actually being able to dance kind of in his mind. He creates dance compositions, uh, and which he shares with Adhira, sort of their secret that he can do this. Um, and he's also there's a lot of there's a lot that destabilizes him. He has fits, which which maybe epilepsy, maybe not. You know, these things weren't well understood at the time. But he finds that being with Adhira has a calming effect on him, and so they have. And she knows this, and so they have this uh, sort of symbiotic bond or or relationship. Uh, and he knows he he gradually understands what what her future is going to be or supposed to be. Um, and he's saddened by it, but he's also in a position, he, he can't do anything about it himself. I have to congratulate you. They're all really wonderful characters. I mean, they're, they're not perfect, um, but they're very rich. They're very likable. Uh, you really managed to communicate that each of them cares for adhering. They care for each other. They can't always express it. And, mm-hmm. Um, especially as tends to happen with fathers and sons, Mahendra and Gandhara, I think have a particularly hard time expressing how much they care for each other. But um, but they are, I mean, the, the whole group of them are really wonderful people. Thanks. Thanks. It, 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 you know, some of the characters ended up growing into bigger characters than I had anticipated their being, for exa- them being. For example, Haridev, the, the disabled... Um, brother at first had a much smaller role and then his character just kind of developed. Yeah, they do. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. So, um, so you mentioned before that you had to uh, adjust the history a little bit. And I write about Russia in the 1530s and Tatars in the 1530s. And so Mm -hmm. I absolutely understand that. I mean, these are people Literally, I've had people ask me whether Ivan the Terrible is the son of Catherine the Great and stuff <laughs> like that. And so, yeah. so there's this line you have to draw where, because especially you don't want to do an information dump, so you have to figure out how you can communicate the information by people who really know, um, mm-hmm. you know, they know the world. They don't need to have it explained to them. Right. Right. Um, but still, you must have done quite a lot of research into this area. What, what kinds of, of um, sources did you use? What did you, you know, how did you decide what to put into the book and what to leave out, all of that kind of thing? Yeah. So I think I had both a conventional and, and an unconventional approach to research. First of all, one of the things that really drew me to setting a story in Rajasthan, which is actually, Rajasthan is one of the areas of India from which um, Katak originally came, not Jaisalmer, um, but another city in Rajasthan, Jaipur. Uh, there are two There are two kind of schools of Katak, the Jaipur school and the Lucknow school. Lucknow is another city in which I'm setting my second book. Um, so, so that is true that there, that there is a, a there are roots of of Katak in in Rajasthan, but the thing about Rajasthan too is it's a part of India in which there's a very very fine line between uh, truth or history uh, or you know what we see as truth and uh, myth or story. 
And because Katak is a storytelling form of dance, it seemed particularly to make sense to set the story there. And I just want to give one little example, which was that if you go to Jaisalmer, which I've been to, uh, and if, if you go to India, I highly recommend that you make that, a little extra effort to get to Jaisalmer. There is a well in the middle of uh, the public square there. And it's, it's capped off now, so you can't fall in, but it's there. You can see it. The story of how that well came to be is actually rooted in uh, a myth. And in that part of the story of the, um, uh, of, the, of the Hindu mythology, a prince, Prince Arjuna, who's a major character in these stories, came along and shot an arrow. He was a very accomplished archer. He shot an arrow, and the arrow hit a rock. And out of the rock came water. And uh, at that point, a sage came by, because sages often come by in these types of stories, and made a prophecy. And the prophecy was that a prince would come along and would choose this as the site for his capital city. Well, so lo and behold, a few hundred years later, Prince Jaisal comes along and finds that this sort of outcropping of rocks uh, in the desert is a, is a good place to set his city and to be able to see out into the desert and, and see his enemies before they get to him. And so he founds the city of Jaisalmer. And there it is. There is the city and there is the well. Uh, and, and this type of of blurring of truth and story and history and myth is sort of fascinating to me and really fit well with the the story itself that I wanted to write. Um, so my research in part was just my experience. I had already done my, some of my research before I really realized and long before I realized I would be writing a book. And that was the experience of growing up traveling in India a lot as a child, uh, living in India, traveling to Jaisalmer, and being able to imagine that city uh, as it must have looked about 500 years ago, because it's actually fairly easy to imagine it. It's a, it's a citadel out in the desert, and the central part of, of the city, which is still all within the walls of the citadel, is a UNESCO World Heritage Site. And so there's very little uh, alteration that can be made to it physically. And the the alleyways, the streets are really narrow. There are no cars allowed. And so if you take out the power lines and the cell phones, everything really looks the way they must have looked back then. So to that extent, the, the setting, you know, was easy to research. Uh, the other part, another part of the research, a big layer of it, which again, I didn't realize was research at the time or would serve as research, was studying the dance form. Uh, I started in 2001 and just being in the dance studio and learning the dances and the movements and the, the stories, uh, I, I certainly could not have written this book without having firsthand kind of, you know, visceral experience of the dance. And then the third part was the more conventional part, which is, uh, you know, researching some of the, some of the more of the history, reading books, really reading journal articles, reading, uh, you know, Googling things, what type of flower is native to that area or not, what type of bird flies over that area in its migratory patterns, you know, all that kind of stuff that um, we historical fiction writers sort of thrive on and then have to decide what to put in or not. But that kind of research, you know, dissecting 
frame by frame an image of a video of a horse galloping uh, to see if the pattern that the hooves made as as make as a hit the ground can match this dance rhythm that I have in my head, that kind of thing, um, which, which I have a lot of fun doing. <laughs> yeah. The research is one of my favorite parts, but then I'm a historian. So. <laughs> but um, that leads me right into where I wanted to be, which is that I would, um, one of the things, in addition to the wonderful characters, one of the things I particularly like about this is the really rich descriptions. I mean, all the stuff that you were just talking about, but also the dance. And so I wondered if you have a passage that you would like to share with us in addition to the one that I already read in the introduction, because I would really like um, listeners to get a sense of um, what just what a great experience it is to read this book. Sure, uh, I'd be happy to. So this is this is actually in the first chapter uh, and it's Mahendra uh, of all of all people who is actually dancing here. And I did my best in uh in, in the book to interweave the the story that the dancer is dancing you know the story of the deity or deities that the dancer is dancing with the character's actual uh, uh sort of thoughts and emotions and 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 own story and so in this case this is a dance uh mahendra does he's in the temple at the in, in the first chapter, and he and his father and Haridev are there to pray for the safe arrival of the baby who will be Adhira, uh, who's clearly about you know about to arrive, and they go and and Mahendra has this brief moment of sort of hope uh, and and a brief sort of closeness with his father at this at this very sort of emotional moment, and he's kind of almost spontaneously stands up and to dance at the temple. Uh, and the dance that he ends up choosing is uh, a, a fight between Krishna uh, and Kaliya, who's a, a, a serpent. And it made sense to me that Mahendra, who was so much fight in him, uh, should choose this as, as, uh, as what he was moved to, to dance. So, with rippling arms and hands, Mahendra created the river Jamuna. His arms encircled the girth of a tree trunk, and his fingertips formed the bright flowers on the branches. Then, with one turn, he became little boy Krishna, the cowherd, playing along the river with his friends. And Mahendra recalled himself as a young, carefree boy before his dance training had begun. Krishna tossed a wooden ball up in the air and caught it to the beat of an imagined melody. And then, full of mischief, he climbed a tree. But all of a sudden, he lost his balance. As he reached to regain his hold, his ball fell into the water. Then Mahendra was Krishna's friends on the riverbank, eyes wide, hands at his cheeks, heels drumming fear onto the ground. Mahendra called out to Krishna not to fetch the ball, for surely the water serpent Kaliya had it now. His hands fanned over his head, he showed Kaliya's hundred and ten hoods. And for my brother, the serpent's threat became that of the Muslim armies invading our land. Once again, Mahendra became Krishna, now a savior, his expression serene. He jumped into the water, pushing aside the water grasses to search for the ball. Then Mahendra was the serpent Kaliya, 
rising in anger, his body undulating. Mahendra's arms showed the serpent coiling around Krishna, the foreign army encircling our citadel. But Krishna assumed his divine powers and grew to such a size that Kaliya had to release him. Mahendra was the furious serpent vomiting poison. Mahendra was his own furious self, letting loose his rage and the pounding of his feet. Then he was Krishna jumping onto the serpent's heads. Krishna assumed the weight of the universe and Kaliya slowly began to die. At this, Kaliya recognized the greatness of Krishna and lowered his body to the ground. In my brother's eyes, Kaliya melted into an image of my father and then that of a foreign soldier with red eyes. In the end, Mahendra was Krishna again, placing his hand on Kaliya's heads to pardon him, but banishing him forever from the river Jamuna. It would not be as easy, however, for him to forgive Bapu or the Muslims. Mahendra kept his eyes closed, his body at ease for the first time in a long while. In the fleeting moment of stillness after a dance, he almost understood how dancing was divine, how one could spend a lifetime searching to hold on to that feeling of lightness. A weight was lifted, the intensity of his anger faded, the burden of Bapu's expectations lessened. He tried not to let himself think, simply to feel, to make the moment last. But for him, it did not. That's absolutely perfect. It leads right into two things that I would like to talk about. And maybe maybe they're so intertwined that you can answer, in effect, both of them at once. One is that, uh, as you've already mentioned with the story of the well, and it's very obvious in this passage, there's a wonderfully rich mythological tradition that is being um, brought into the dance and is part of these characters' worlds. And then the dance itself has so many different levels, the physical and the spiritual and so on. Um, how do you see that? How... The different levels of the dance, you mean, or the different... Um, both. I mean, what, first of all, where did you master all these tales? Was this part <laughs> of learning the dance, or did you, were you always aware of them? So these are tales uh, that are... Oh, I think almost anybody of any South Asian descent is familiar with some of them. I mean, I grew up in a in a very multicultural family with a Jewish American mother and a Indian Hindu Indian father, uh, growing up in you know Catholic France. Um, and we're not a religious family, but a lot of the values and essence of the three cultures permeated my life. So, you know, we would banter with Yiddish terms and we listened to Indian classical music and I read Balzac and Zola in French. So it was a, it was a big mishmash. But uh, but the stories that appear in the book are from those Hindu epics, um, the Mahabharata and the Ramayana. And uh, the, these stories find their way into uh, South Asian children's books, comic strips, plays, dance, songs, um, music. They're kind of they're part of the cultural heritage of that part of the world, whether you're religious or not. Um, and so, so I was already already familiar with a lot of these deities and characters in these stories. Uh, but then it was through studying Katak, you know, being in the studio, learning the dance and learning these dances in particular, that I became more familiar with the stories um, and and the different layers of the stories. Uh, and so that by the time I started writing the book, I had a good store of these in my head and I was able to match 
um, certain moments in, of the book and certain uh, certain moments in the in in different characters' development to specific stories from from those myths. And what about the dance itself? I mean, it's, what does it mean to you, the Kata dance? What does it mean to your characters? Ah, well, I mean. I'm I'm fascinated with Katak in the sense that I feel like it really embodies the whole history of India. It, it embodies, um, you know, Hinduism and Islam and um, the influence of the British. And, uh, you know, the Katak we see today is this amalgamation of all these experiences and, and how this tradition uh, morphed and adapted to change while still maintaining its integrity, uh, which I think is something that we encounter, whether we realize it or not, in, in a lot of realms of life, um, how to how to adapt, how to face change, how to maintain the integrity of a long tradition, um, but how to innovate within that tradition. So that's kind of an intellectual approach to, to what Katak means to me. Um, it, for me, it's also... Uh, it's a source of learning. I mean, there's, it's such a vast world. Uh, I think when you start studying a classical art form like this or, um, you know, a martial art or something that has such depth to it, uh, it's, it's sort of intoxicating. You realize the more you learn, the more there is to learn. And, uh, and I like that. You know, I like that idea that I'll never come to the end of it. Uh, there's always a sense of discovery. Uh, and it's also, you know, I do it also for exercise, uh, for the discipline, for the tremendous um, uh, sort of cardio <laughs> experience of it. Because when we dance, we also sing. And so there's a lot going on at once. Uh, for me, it's also a cultural connection, you know, to that side of my heritage. And uh, and it's also because I ended up co-founding a nonprofit around this form of dance. For me, it's become also a source of a lot of friendships and camaraderie. Uh, so it's a lot. There's a lot. You know, little did I know when I stepped into that studio that the Katak would bring so many different things to my life, including, you know, the inspiration for these books. For the characters, it really means something different, I think, for each one. I think... Um, well, I know, I shouldn't say I think since I created these characters, but for Adhira, the dance is, is an expression of her faith. It's her refuge, you know, her place of refuge. It's her source of freedom. For Mahendra, on the other hand, it's a burden. Uh, and it's all the more complicated for him because he knows that he is at heart a dancer and he's struggling against that, uh, against his own nature. So for him, it's a source of conflict. Uh, for Gandhar, it's the meaning of his life. It's the purpose, uh, his tradition. It's what he is all about. Uh, and you know, for Girija, it's Girija's ambivalent. It's what it's what drew her to Gandhar, and it's also what kind of uh, is not repulsive. That's a little stronger, but yeah, the opposite of you know drawing him her to him. It's what pushes her away from him as well. Uh, so it's it's complicated, you know. It means very different things to to each character. So, what would you like readers to take away from *Faint Promise of Rain*? I'd like readers um, or listeners, since I am planning an audiobook, um, I'd like I'd like them to take away a, a whole immersive 
experience, uh, a sense, uh, something that has affected more than just one sense. Uh, I'd like readers to take away a sense of the music, of the setting, of the colors of Rajasthan, of the rhythms, uh, of the tradition. I'd like it to be an eye-opening introduction to a whole new world. And for people, when they close the book, to kind of sit back and and just think, wow, there are so many, there are so many worlds out there. You know, there's so much to discover. What else? What else can I read about that will open up an entire new world for me? Um, and I'd like maybe for readers to to find a new way to look at traditions or to look at things in their own lives um, or traditions or or art forms that they've enjoyed or practiced or experienced and think about how much of history and, you know, sociopolitical history and religious history and cultural history is, is carried forth uh, in these, in these traditions, because I don't know, we live in a time of, of such, everything's kind of fragmented and, and, and short-lived and ephemeral and, you know, a post goes up on Facebook and then it disappears, even if it was sort of a deep thought at the time. And, and this is the complete opposite. You know, this is, um, this is an immersion in a very different type of world. Uh, and I, I really hope that as we hurtle forward in our very technology driven society, we don't lose touch with, um, these, these traditions and, and their significance. So you mentioned that you're working on the second book in the series. Can you tell us anything about that? Sure. Yeah. So I like to call it a set rather than a series because it's not going to be with the same characters. Uh, just as my first book was set at a time of transition, the beginning of the Mughal era, right when the first, um, when a Muslim emperor took the throne in what was still Hindustan. Uh, my next book is, is fast forward is, is looking at the, the next transition or next big transition, which is the end of the Mughal era and the beginning of British rule. I like these times of instability, of change, uh, and to see what, what happens, uh, what happens to people when, when they have to either take sides or make a decision. Um, and so my next book is set in Lucknow in, uh, 1850s, uh, just at the time that, and so now this is a Muslim courtesan world that we find ourselves in, uh, but it becomes very much affected by the actions of the British who decide to, that this, this, who are very disapproving of this, um, you know, immoral art form, which they don't, they don't view as an art form. And so I have a main character who is a courtesan, Malika, and her son, who is a half Indian, half French boy, because Malika's patron is a French engineer. And what I like about uh, Etienne, her son, is that he doesn't fit into any of the existing categories, which maybe this is a personal, this comes from deep inside me, because as a person who grew up straddling three cultures, I've never really, quote unquote, fit in to any category. Um, for me, that's okay. I, I'm, I'm, I'm actually all right with that, but I know that it can be difficult. And so Etienne is neither Indian uh, nor British nor Anglo-Indian, which was an existing, you know, category of folks. Uh, he's Franco-Indian. And so when a war breaks out, 
there is no obvious place for him. There is no, uh, 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 there's no side that he can go to. And that's what I find fascinating for him. For Malika, her entire way of life as a courtesan uh, falls apart. And, and, and she and the other courtesans, her mother and others in the house that they live in, really have to figure out what they're going to do to, to save themselves and to save their, um, their art form. So that's the setting uh, of the second book. I'm just thinking as you're talking, as authors, we are such sadists. (laughs) It's true, huh? Sometimes I wonder, why why am I, why am I doing this? (laughs) Well, it sounds great. So I wish you all best uh, success with that. Maybe you can come back and talk about the second book when we get to that point. I'd be delighted to. Um, Thank you so much for sharing your time with us today. Absolutely. Thank you. And thank you for listening to our podcast. Once again, I'm C.P. Leslie, and today I've been talking with Anjali Mitterduva, author of Faint Promise of Rain. You can find out more about her at http colon slash slash a-n-j-a-l-i-m-i-t-t-e-r-d-u-v-a dot com. Like us on Facebook, search for NB Historical Fiction, and follow us on Twitter at New Books Histfic. If you do, you'll see each time we post a new interview. You can also find out more about me, my website, and my books at blog.cplesley.com, where I upload expanded posts about the interviews and in general discuss history, historical fiction, and the rapidly changing publishing industry. Goodbye until my next conversation about new books in historical fiction.